And this morning I want to explore this idea of being filled with grace and what it means to walk in grace. Because when I explored it last time, we talked about grace and truth. Because in John 1.14 we read that Jesus there is full of grace and truth. And we talked about this idea of kind of walking this place between grace and truth. And so to introduce what I want to say today, I want to show you a little uh, video. So, uh, this morning, if you want a tile, have we got it there? I know, it's, you swap it. There we go. Come to church, learn a new word. Funambulism is the proper word for tightrope walking, uh, apparently. And a funambulist is a tightrope walker. There you go. Sit down now, okay? Talk to you something. Um, I use that word because walking between grace and truth is funambulism. It's like walking on a tightrope. It's not easy to stay balanced between the two, and you can easily fall off into either truth or into grace rather than be balanced between the both. So this morning, I want to share with you some thoughts about truth, some thoughts about interpretation, and some thoughts about the pole that helps us stay balanced on this tightrope. And we're going to start with truth. Uh, and we've already seen Jesus was full of, of the two I talked last week about, how we managed it in John chapter 8 between this lady. And of course, grace and truth are often spoken of as as these two extremes. On one hand, you've got truth at the, at the far end. You've got this kind of list of laws, things you've got to do and don't. And then you've got grace, which right at the very far end is often seen as this idea that you can just do whatever the heck you want because God loves you anyway. And so there's these two extremes that Jesus was full of both. So he knew truth, which we'll explore while that is in a minute. And he also knew grace and he managed to walk all the time in the middle of these two things. So first of all, in what is truth? Well, Jesus said this. So Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So Thomas asked him a question. He goes, no, but I am the truth. In other words, Jesus is not a truth. He is the truth. He is the only one who is actually true, the only one in whom you can find no fault, problem, weakness or issue, and the only person who will be continually true to you and what is previously said. That's why he's the truth, because he's always true, always true to himself and always true to what he's already said. And of course, this walk, this, this faith that's called Christianity is a journey towards being like Jesus. So it's not a journey of knowing a lot of things. It's not a journey of serving in lots of things, although you will know some things and you will serve in some things, but rather it's a journey of knowing a person called Jesus and becoming increasingly like him. And since Jesus is truth, then you can define your journey as going towards the truth. Can't you? If Jesus is the truth and the destination's towards Jesus, then you're going towards the truth. So truth's got this really important part to play because truth really is where you are heading. If you're going to be like Jesus, you're going to be like the truth. And Jesus also doesn't just let you do that on their own because he sends his Holy Spirit, who's described in the Bible, that he would guide you into all truth. In other words, he'd guide you becoming more like him. But as I said last week, there's the truth, which is God as revealed in Jesus through the Bible. And then there's your truth. And your truth is what you perceive God to be. Because although it says in the Bible that Jesus forgives you, you often know that as a theory. You know it as a concept. You know it as this idea. 
But actually, you're meant to know it as an experience in your life. So that when you look back on those things you have done wrong, the guilt and the shame is not there because you were forgiven. That's what it means to be forgiven and know you are forgiven because now you don't know the guilt or shame because you've been forgiven. And in the same way that we know that God is love, and we'll explore that thought in a minute, and God loves you. He says all through the Bible, God loves you. And yet most of us have these questions in our minds as to whether God loves us. What is that? That's your truth. Your truth is God loves me when I get this right. God loves me when I do this. God loves me when this happens. That's your truth. But the truth is God just loves you. And so your journey in almost towards the truth, your truth is meant to slowly becoming his truth. That's what it really means to journey into truth. So there's this disconnect really between what God's really like and what you perceive God to be like is your walk of faith going towards him. Now, the really thing about truth is that I talk about truth, you have to talk about interpretation. And I want to say a few things about the Bible. Now, I am, I'm crafting a talk at the moment all about how the Bible, about how I see it, about what I think about it, about passages that clearly contradict each other, about the violence you see in it, about God supposedly ordering the killing of women and children. Now, I'm, I'm in the middle of crafting it because I, wa- I want to explain it to you. I want to show you a little bit about, so you can understand those things. But it's, I'm, just, I'm not quite there yet. But I am in this place. This is something that I saw on Facebook Uh, the other day. So somebody wrote this. It's one thing to misunderstand the Bible, but a totally different thing to misinterpret the Bible. Now, at first glance, you're well like, okay, that's that's not a bad statement, is it? Except there's a problem with that statement. Because we all interpret the Bible. First of all, it was written 2,000 years ago in ancient Hebrew and ancient Greek. So it's already been interpreted to be put into English so you can read it. That's the first thing. The reality is that everybody interprets it. So when I read a statement like that, what the person is really saying, whether they know it or not, is that their interpretation is the right interpretation. And if you don't agree with their interpretation, you are misinterpreting it. And what they're really saying is, I'm right and you're wrong. That's what that statement, I don't think that person who wrote even understands that, but that's what they're really saying. I understand the Bible this way, And if you choose to understand it a different way, you are misinterpreting it. You're getting it wrong and I'm getting it right. I don't believe we can be arrogant enough to say that we have the right interpretation of the Bible. Because if I'm right, that means everybody else is wrong. And I'm not sure I'm the person to decide that I am the only person who knows exactly what God said and exactly what God meant and that I can decree that this is the right way. Let me keep going on. You see, the Catholic Church has interpreted the Bible to be built on Peter because it says, Jesus says, Peter, on you I'll build my church. That's why the day of a Pope comes from. Because this lie, and the Pope's this big thing, and they've understood confession and absolution, and they get it all from this book. And then you've got an Anglican church who believes in a slightly different way. So in terms of communion, I went to a service in a communion church because I'd not been confirmed I could be blessed, but I couldn't take communion. And they believe it from this book. And then I went to a different, talked to a different person who assured me that there was no way that a woman could ever be involved in any form of leadership, and she showed me from this book. And then I read a different book who said, no, women can be in leadership. Oh, and she showed me from this book. And then I went to another place and saw something else who said that um, 
gay, gay relationships should be celebrated and the fantastic and committed faithful relationships and they found it all in this book. And then I went to another place who said that no, it's wrong, it's sinful and it's absolutely terrible and guess where they got that from? Oh, it was this book. You see, what's going on? What's happened is that people, have inter they've taken truth and they've interpreted it. That's what happens all the time, which is okay. I'm okay with that. What I'm not okay with is when somebody tells me that I'm wrong and they're right. Because I don't believe they have the right to do that. Because I don't have the right to do that. I won't know this side of heaven whether I've got it right or not. Now, I believe it's right, and I'm going to explain why I believe it's right. But that doesn't give me the right to tell everybody else they're wrong. And it doesn't give you that right either, I don't believe. So, a little tip for you. If you ever get into a debate about the Bible, don't argue whether you're right and they're wrong. Talk to them about interpretation. Go back a little bit and go, which lens are you reading it through? How are you reading the Bible? How are you understanding it? Because that's really where the discussion is. There's no point. There's no point having that debate. But there's a point about going, well, how, tell me how you got there. Tell me what lens you're reading it through. Tell me how you understand it. Because honestly, and people do, they spend years arguing this stuff. The problem is they don't actually become like the truth in the process of talking about the truth. And that's the problem. I'd much rather become like the truth than argue about the truth. Now for me, lots of people as well, they take the Bible, particularly the bits in the Old Testament, and they proclaim that as truth. But the Bible is what we call an unfolding revelation. It's a storybook that takes you from a place in Genesis, which, which is probably a bit of a prequel, really. It's Star Wars episode one, two, and three is Genesis. Exodus is, prob uh, is, is really kind of episode four. That's where it kind of, it's almost like Genesis is this backstory to Exodus, because that's where you see God coming and rescuing his people from a place where they want them to be, which is what God is all about. But we'll get there when I talk about it. But I view the whole of the Bible through a lens called Jesus. The whole of the Bible through a lens called Jesus. And I do that because according to the Bible, if you want to see what God is really like, then we need to look at Jesus. So 1 John 1, 17 to 18 says this, For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus. So there you go. So you get a law that came through Moses. And then grace and truth comes through Jesus. Which is greater? It's better. It's more developed. It's more evolved. It's deeper. It's more everything. It's beautiful. It is. No one has ever seen God but the one and only Son who is, in, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father has made him None. See, if you read it, that's just it right there in, in two verses from John. Want to know what God is? He's Jesus. The man who is closest to the Father has made him known. So why, why did we need the law? Well, there's a law for a reason. The people of Israel have been in slavery for 400 years. After 400 years, you don't know what it's like to not live in slavery. Nobody can remember what it was like to not live in slavery. So guess what? They need some help to learn what it's like to live. They need a moral code. They need a religious code. They need a code as to how to operate when you are free because they don't know. Otherwise, you get anarchy. That's why there was a law. To help them 
live in this place. And if you actually read Exodus and Leviticus, all of which are radically forward-thinking in their time, you see how incredible God is. See, lots of people read the Old Testament, for example, and come to the conclusion that, oh, God hates women. Well, no, hang on a minute. The Old Testament is revolutionary in its attitude to women's rights. But you've got to think where they started. You can't read, you can't read Leviticus through a Me Too filter. It's 5,000 years ago when women were property. That's what they were, just property to be sold and traded. So God comes along and goes, no, no, we're going to give these women some rights. And you can look, well, that's not very much. No, but it would leap forward from where they were. He, he took it forward. And it took 4,900 years just to give them the vote. Think about it. God moves them forward because God loves everybody and God's into valuing people and caring for people because people are precious. So he gives them some rights and everybody looks and goes, oh, this God's horrible. This God's revolutionary and radical in the whole of human history and moves it forward. That's what God does. And then, it's good, isn't it? I'm enjoying it. John 5. This is 14 chapters afterwards. They've obviously not listened in chapter 1. Because Philip goes, Lord, show us the Father and that'll be enough for us. Hang on a minute, son. Go back to the beginning. Jesus said, don't you know me, Philip? Even after I've been along, you can feel the frustration. Anyone who has seen me has seen who? The Father. How can you say, show us the Father? In other words, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. And then you get to Hebrews. So this is three different verses in the Bible that all confirm this. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. How much clearer could it be that Jesus is the way to see God? The exact representation of his being is the exact Lightness of God. And then, so you get this progression through, and then you get to Paul who shares some more because Paul talks about Christ in you. Paul goes even further and says, no, 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 it's not about a temple, it's not about a place, it's about you being the temple and God being in you. I'm excited to share that word when I get it together because when you see this flow and this arc and it's, oh, it's just incredible. Starting to see the Bible in this way helps you understand some things and why in the early part of the Old Testament you read that God hates or God finds this detestable, for example. And it's fascinating how people use the Bible because you see them using verses from the Old Testament to tell people that God hates them. You might be aware of a lady called Vicky Beechin. She uh, was a Christian singer-songwriter, huge in America. I mean, a contract with a recording company went to all the American megachurches and um, at 35, she came out as gay. And she's written a book called Undivided about her journey to that point and beyond. The saddest thing about that journey is that she had nobody whatsoever to talk about about that issue. Nobody in her entire life. And she was on the platforms at the biggest mega churches in America with a massive recording contract. And she knew that if she talked to anybody, she might lose it all one day. So she never talked to anybody until the point where her emotional and mental health took such a toll she had to just come out as what she felt was her identity. She had to come out as that and then lost everything overnight. 
Well, the saddest thing is that she had nobody to talk to about. And the even sadder thing is that people write this on a Twitter feed. It has everything to do with it. You are in vile rebellion against God, and rebellion is as a sin of witchcraft. Your LGBT encyclical, however well intended from a deceived heart it may be, is demonically inspired and raw, and is witchcraft. The account is ETN, I don't know who they are, but they're a church place. It's a ministry in America. And there are many other people. That's one person's Twitter account. And one example. She actually took time off Twitter because she got trolled so much she couldn't cope with it. That is an utter and absolute disgrace. An utter disgrace. Now, when you see the Bible through the lens of Jesus, you come to understand one underlying truth that all truth is built on. And this foundational truth is that God loves. That's the foundational truth. And you see that in 1 John 4, 16, that God is love. Which doesn't mean he just loves. It means his entire thinking and being is love. Everything about him is love. He cannot think in any other way. And what's really important is that God loves people. He loves them. No matter who they are, no matter what they are, no matter their identity, no matter their history, no matter their past, no matter where they think they're going, he loves them, every single last one of them. I am utterly convinced that everybody in this world is beloved of God unconditionally, no matter who they are or what they are or what they think they are. Everybody. I'm absolutely convinced of it. I want you to remember that in the Old Testament, we read of God hating things like divorce and finding homosexual, physical homosexual relationships detestable, for example. But when you get to Jesus in the New Testament, he uses the word hate 16 times, not once in relation to a person or an act. Not once. Never does Jesus say he hurts a person or an act. He says things like, people will hate you because of me. He says things like, I'm hated. He says things like, you will have to hate your own life if you want to follow me. He says things like, if you want to follow me, you'll have to love me so much that it'll look like you might hate those that you love. But he never, ever, ever says that he hates anybody or any act, ever. Just think about that. What Jesus does is point out the positive alternative. He points us towards a healthy internal life, encouraging us to go beyond simple external actions to actually deal with what is in our hearts. If Jesus hates anything, then what he hates is everything that causes pain and heartache. So, this is what Jesus hates. He hates selfishness because it ruins lives. He hates poverty because it ruins lives. He hates unforgiveness because it ruins lives. He hates bitterness because it ruins lives. He hates war because it ruins lives. He hates pride because it ruins lives. He hates anything that causes pain and hurt. But he loves you. That's the thing. He loves you more than anything. He thinks you are the best thing ever. But he loves you. And that's the problem with taking something like divorce, for example, and using the verses in the Old Testament to justify what God is like. I'll tell you why God hates divorce, because divorce involves separation and pain. Yeah. That's why he hates it. Because it's painful. Yeah. I've never known a divorce that's full of joy, have you? But God's joy. Yeah. So when people get to a point where they feel like they can't continue, there's pain, there's separation. That's what God hates right there. 
The pain and the separation of broken relationships, that's what God hates. Why? Because it hurts you and it hurts other people. That's why he hates it. Many in the truth camp, they lump God hating things into God hating the people, but I do not make that link, and I believe it's impossible to make that link, and I don't think God makes that link either. I believe it's impossible for God to hate a person because God is love as expressed in Jesus. And that includes all the people you don't like. It includes all the people you think, all the people on the face of the earth. No matter who they are or what they have done. And that might be difficult because people might have done very painful things to you. They might have hurt you in big ways. And, and, and God's love does not excuse that. God's love does not make that all right in that sense, but it doesn't stop him loving them as he loves you because guess what? You have also hurt people. You have also got it wrong. You have also made mistakes. And there's no point playing the game of, well, I did less than that because it's not about that. It's black or it's white. It's I made a mistake or I didn't. There is no, there is no scale with God. There's just I got it right or I got it wrong. And we all got it wrong, so we're all the same. <coughs> So, how is it possible for us to walk in truth and yet share grace? Because there is, there is some things that God says that clearly there's a right way to live. Clearly there's some things that are the right way to go about living. There's a truth, as expressed in Jesus, and the way Jesus lived his life, and the way further on we, we get expounded in the New Testament. Well, if you think back to that video, you remember the big, big pole he was carrying? I believe there's a quality that comes from the heart of the Father that is like that pole, it keeps you balanced on the tightrope. Jesus told a story about two brothers, which we've explored a lot over the summer. The younger one, we are told, asked for his inheritance and squandered it through reckless living, whilst the older one stayed at home and lived what, what it seems at first instance is this best way. At the end of the story, the elder brother, the one who has apparently lived the better way, is the one who finds himself outside the house refusing to join in the big pie. It's the brother who's full of truth, that ends up missing the pie. And the key to and at one point the son comes back and the elder son doesn't understand why God gets why the father allows him back. But the way of understanding why father can receive him back is in this verse. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. Compassion. This is what compassion is. A feeling of deep sympathy and sorrow for another who is struck by misfortune, accompanied by a strong desire to alleviate that suffering. That's what it means to be, feel compassion, yeah. to be compassionate about somebody. Yeah. Deep sympathy and sorrow for somebody who is stricken by misfortune, accompanied by a strong desire to alleviate the suffering. This compassion, this deep sympathy was so deep in the Father's heart and so deep in Jesus' heart, you often see him being moved with compassion. Matthew 9.36, he's moved with compassion and teaches. Matthew 14.14, 14, he's moved with compassion and heals. Matthew 15.32, he's moved with compassion and feeds people. Matthew 20.35, he's moved with compassion and restores people. Jesus is moved with compassion and then he teaches and restores and he heals and he feeds because he acts out of it. 
because he feels their pain. In Colossians 3, we read these words. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly beloved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. If we want to walk as Jesus walked and stay on that tightrope between grace and truth, you will need to clothe yourself in compassion. And you know to what extent you are clothed in compassion by your initial reaction to those who are suffering. When you hear stories, your initial reaction tells you the extent to which you are already clothed in compassion. When I talked about Vicky Beach, your reaction will tell you whether you are clothed in compassion. When you watch the cat documentary and saw those people, your reaction will tell you your level of compassion. When you hear of people losing their jobs or losing loved ones, how do you react? What's your first thought? What's your first instinct? That tells you where you're at on your journey in compassion. Compassion is something you can grow in. I was not a compassionate person 15 years ago. 15 years ago, I believe you should pull yourself up and you're responsible for your own destiny. And if you were struggling, then you best do something about it because it's your life and you're responsible for it. That was my ability to be compassionate. In other words, it was zero. But God has worked in me, and I have worked with him, and I have grown in compassion. I watched the film Wonder this week. If you've never seen Wonder, you must watch it. It's a film, uh, it's on Netflix, so it's, um, it's a film about a boy who has facial deformities, and um, he's been homeschooled up to the age of 10, and he's going to start middle school. And... Um, the story is told through the eyes of the boy and then the mum and then his sister and his sister's friend. And I basically cried through the whole film because not only did I feel for the boy, but then I'm, all, I'm already thinking about the, the daughter who's not really thought about because he gets all the attention. And, and then I think about the daughter's friend and, and then I just cried through the whole thing. Why? Because God has built compassion in me. And it's not easy growing in compassion because you want to alleviate whatever's going on and at times you can't. You can't give to everything. You can't do everything. You can't be everywhere. So it causes these interesting challenges in your heart. But if I can grow in compassion, then so can you. Wherever you feel you're at it. And if we reach this world then we must, because without it, we'll either give them grace or we'll give them truth, and neither on their own will be enough. So I just want us to pray. And it's interesting because about four years ago, five years ago, something like that, Paul preached on, it was like a a January word or a New Year's Eve word or something like that, about compassion. And it was like he started this, I don't know what happened that day, but something happened. All I know is I've just grown in this place where now I'm like, just there's this feeling in your stomach that you just can't. And then you get frustrated because you can't do anything about it. And it's, but you know what? Compassion opens doors everywhere. Like everywhere. Shall we pray? Father, I want to thank you that 
we want to be a house and a people who are really good funambulists, really good tightrope walkers between grace and truth. But Lord, we want to walk that tightrope and get it right. As we saw last week in John 8, you were incredible at showing grace and truth. But Lord, we realize we need that compassion, that pull, as it were, that balances out. And Father, I am asking, Lord, for those that desire it, those that want to grow in it, Father, I'm asking that, as you say in Colossians, that we would clothe ourselves with compassion, Lord. Yeah, we just, we realize it's already there for us in many ways, Lord, but we just want to choose to put it on. We want to choose to wear it more. We want to choose to move in it more. We ask, Lord, that you'd help us see situations through your eyes of compassion, Father. Not through our eyes of truth or even through our eyes of grace, but through your eyes of compassion that lead the way in, Father. Lord, I want to feel for people like you felt for people, Lord. And I want to see people how you see them, Father. And we are asking more and more that we might see and feel in that way. And Lord, when we have when we have been not quite right in our understanding of your word and our talking of your word, we want to say sorry, Father. We thank you for it. But Lord, if we've got it wrong at times, if we've been arrogant enough to think that we're right about it and other people are wrong, Lord, we say sorry. And we repent, Father. And we ask for your love and your truth and your grace to flow out of us more and more in Jesus' name. Amen.